Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Discovering whether we have a particular version of gene in ourselves can hint at or present red flags to the predisposition of various diseases like a cancer. When science first sequenced all the genes in the entire human genome, it became possible for scientists to start to compare the genomic patterns of larger groups of people, looking for more clues to health and disease. Finding out about the possibilities and consequences of getting a certain disease or condition can pose ethical and cultural quandaries for families. The job title, Genetic Counselor, became a thing in the late 20th century, and it's blossomed since then. Hi, I'm Clara Gaff. I am an Honorary Professorial Fellow at the University of Melbourne and the Executive Director of the Melbourne Genomics Health Alliance. Professor Clara Gaff was awarded the Most Valuable Woman in Leadership in the Biomedical Space for 2019. She's made a difference to people's lives by bringing genomics into healthcare. Professor Clara Gaff sat down with our reporter, Dr Andy Horvath, to talk about her work. Clara, what's changed in your industry? I'm not sure how far we should go back because I know it's big, but let's start somewhere. Well, maybe if we start when I was training as a genetic counsellor, when it was sort of really at the early stages of genetic testing still, and I remember just early towards the end of my training, going to a meeting where the Huntington's gene had just been found and the cause, what caused Huntington's disease, a really serious neurological condition, um, had been identified. And to go from that, I guess, 25 or so years ago, I haven't actually counted too carefully, to now being able to offer in healthcare tests to look at thousands of genes all at one time is, I guess, still stuns me. It would something I could never have imagined This has been the revolution of genetics for human genomes. We sequenced the whole entire genome and we started comparing it to others. What has surprised you most about the changes in the field? Oh, there have been so many changes. And I guess in our work, we focus a lot on the challenges and overcoming the challenges. Maybe one of the things that surprised me is how effective this technology is. We've always talked, and there continue to be limitations of any technology as a genetic counsellor. When people are coming in for genetic testing, we'll say, well, we might find something, we might not. If we don't, that's uninformative. The chances really often were that we wouldn't find something even though we expected that there was a genetic cause to the condition. And for many, many people, we couldn't offer a test. Now, the rates of diagnosis using this technology um, is, surpasses what I had expected. Let's take it from the patient perspective. How does it all work? I come to you or a version of you <laughs> that is a genetic counsellor. Why have I come to you and what can you do? Yeah. So... In genomics at the moment, it's very much about identifying the cause of a condition in a person with a medical condition. And so we're looking at 16 different types of conditions where genomics may make a difference to the health care of that person. And so as a genetic counsellor, mostly I've worked with people that are likely to have been born with a change in their genetic makeup that's caused their medical condition. So for that person coming in, they would normally see a doctor um, in genetics, that would be a medical geneticist, 
pharmacist, uh, might be experts in other health profession, um, other medical disciplines, and they would have an assessment like, is this likely to be caused by something genetic? Is there a likely diagnosis or maybe many possible diagnoses? Uh, and sometimes that one condition might be caused by many different genes. And so that's one of the difference between genetics and genomics. With genetics, like for example, cystic fibrosis, there is one gene that causes that and you look for mutations in that one gene. But there are many conditions that can look quite like each other. So there might be many genes that you might want to test. And it was never feasible to test one gene after another. It's basically very expensive, very time consuming and not really feasible to offer within the health system. Whereas now patients can have one test to look at those many, many different possible genes that could be causing their condition. So for the person, it's, I guess, maybe not terribly dissimilar to having a genetic test in that a sample of blood is collected and that's tested. It takes quite a while um, for in normal conditions, so three months or so to get the test. This isn't straightforward testing at all. And um, the implications that are discussed are, are similar still because we're still talking about genetic conditions, inherited conditions. So whether it's a genetic test or a genomic test, those implications are the same. One of the differences that we see is some of the challenges in genetic testing are really scaled up with genomics. So because you're looking at more genes, there are more bases that could be changed. And a lot of those genes are new. We don't really understand fully the differences between normal, lack of a better word, and an altered gene. Um, it's a bit like being given a book to read in Russian and you know it can make sense but you're not really fluent in Russian. Give us some perspective of the types of disorders because I really have no idea. Do I go to you if I've had a cancer diagnosed or if I've got a neurological condition or do I go to you as a parent who's hoping to have children but has concerns? Yeah, so... With the genomic testing at the moment, it's we're looking at most of those situations. So with children that have been born um, with serious problems, um, maybe acutely unwell, for example, in, in intensive care, and they think that there's likely a genetic basis to that. So Zonitsa Stark and Sue White, who are medical geneticists at the Victorian Clinical Genetic Service and Royal Children's Hospital, have been working with the intensive care unit there and the laboratories to see if the testing, the genomic test, can be speeded up so that instead of taking three months, it can be done much, much faster for those children to get a diagnosis more quickly and therefore to influence the medical care of those babies. And that's been phenomenally successful. Um, the More than half of the babies are getting a diet that are tested, are getting a diagnosis. And I think three quarters of those are then having a change in their care. And sometimes that's quite a simple change that can really make a rapid improvement. Just to give me perspective conditions, these are neurological conditions like cystic fibrosis, which is one uh, gene, or Huntington's, which is one gene. Uh, various, some cancers are more than one gene. Yeah, so with conditions that are just one gene, we'd normally that would stay with genetic testing. These would be conditions more. I mean, I'm, I'm not being specific about names because there are so many. Um, they tend to be the ones that are seen more rarely. So each. Each condition individually is very rare, um, but when you look together, you know, of all of these rare genes, they can be more common. I get it. <laughs> so if you put together data sets of rare genetic disorders, all of a sudden they're not so rare. Exactly. Because you've detected them. Exactly. Okay, I'm starting yep. to see the picture. And so some of the changes, like um, some of the, the patients that we sort of focused on 
initially were ones where the clinician thought, well, I think this is the likely diagnosis. And then they the laboratory would sequence all the genes, but they would just analyse the genes that the clinician thought were the ones related to that condition. But if that wasn't they didn't find a change causing a condition, then they could look more widely after that. So by looking at that data, that's a domino effect because if there's someone else around the world who has something similar, then they can match it to a pattern they saw in Melbourne, to one in London and one in Beijing. So this starts to work as big data. It's exactly what it is and that's exactly the way it's working. So we're they might find a change in a gene that maybe one person in the world has been found to have, then they can say, well, look, we've got this patient here with a change in this gene as well. And then somebody else will say, oh, we've just found one too. And so suddenly around the world, people are connecting and bringing together their knowledge to say, okay, well, we think this really is then the gene that's truly causing this condition. And that's actually the case for the families as well. As families are going on Facebook and they're forming groups for these conditions where there may only be five children around the world. With it. They're forming groups and they're comparing their experiences, you know, raising their children, what their children are like, you know, to, to work out, well, is this something caused by the condition or is this just my child? So that's the that's what we call germline conditions where people are born with a change in but this is also relevant for cancer. So some people develop cancer because they're born with a genetic change and everybody's heard of the BRCA1, BRCA2 genes causing breast ovarian cancer. Angelina Jolie made those famous. Uh, but for most people, cancer happens because there's an accumulation of changes in cells that happen through their lifetime. And some of those changes can mean that the cancer is more likely to respond to particular medications. So um, Jayesh Desai at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre and his colleagues are doing a project through Melbourne Genomics testing people that have got advanced cancer, so really where many of their therapies and treatments have been exhausted, to see if there are what we call actionable or potentially actionable changes. So an actionable change is where there may be a treatment on the basis of the changes that are seen in the cancer. And so what they're doing is seeing if there are changes there that then people can go into cancer trials to have the latest treatments, um, experimental treatments, to see if that will make a difference to their outcome. Clara, you've been instrumental in bringing genomics to healthcare. And I get it. There's a lot of big data out there. It just needs to be linked. How on yeah. earth did you herd all those cats? <laughs> oh, I was given very good advice by Doug Hilton, who's the director at the Walton Eliza Hall Institute. Uh, this Melbourne Genomics was put together by the CEOs of the Parkville-based institutions initially. We're now going more broadly than that. And his advice was to a vision, what would genomics look like in five years' time if people were working together, what would it look like? And that really helped, to say, herd the cats because it meant that what we weren't saying to people, well, you have to change what you're doing now. And what they were doing at that time was sequencing lots of genes, but not the entire, not all genes or the entire genome. They, were, they might sequence, for example, the 50 genes known to cause 
inherited cardiac conditions, for example. And so we're saying, that's fine. You know, we're not asking you to change anything. What we're doing is testing out a vision of the future. You know, for five years' time, we're testing that vision out. And, you know, are you willing to try that out? And they said, yes, we'll do that. And so as well as doing their regular work, everybody worked very hard and I think was very generous with their time and enthusiasm to test out an approach where we were providing genomic testing to patients. And when I say we, it's, you know, the clinicians, laboratories, everybody working together as part of medical care. But unlike everywhere else in the world where people were testing it out after every other test had been done, we were saying, well, you know, maybe in healthcare this would be the first test that you'll do. So we will test it out as the first test, but in parallel. So at the same time as people are getting their standard care. So their their usual care is not being compromised or changed. What we're doing is adding an extra test on early. And then what we can do is compare the two, what happens with the usual care and what happens with the genomic test. So we could do a direct head-to-head comparison for that individual and then across that patient group as a whole, we'll say, this is what a difference it can make to this group of patients. And so we've funded the test and the laboratories introduced this technology and I think this really helped the laboratories accelerate getting this technology into the labs sooner rather than keeping on just doing panels for longer. And then what we did was not direct what should happen, like the medical care, obviously, of the patient. That was for the clinician to decide. But then we looked at what difference, what decisions the clinicians were making on the basis of this information. So did it change patient care or not? And then what were the outcomes out of that? And very importantly, you know, I talk about doctors and laboratories, but really at the heart of this are the people with the medical conditions. And we also surveyed them, interviewed them, and we have a fabulous community advisory group who make sure that patients remain at the centre. And this is another difference when we started at the time, people were very focused on the technology challenges. So they were sort of I'd say technology-driven, lab-driven. This is all the stuff that the technology can do. Look at this, isn't this great? And focus on those challenges where we turned it around the other way and said, actually, knowing from being a genetic counsellor and seeing the challenges of getting new tests into clinical practice, the challenge is actually going to be at the healthcare end. Having a new technology available doesn't mean that it's necessarily taken up in healthcare by clinicians and patients. And so we, our focus was on the healthcare part and with clinicians and patients and that interaction and saying not so much that genomics is going to, people talk about it being paradigm changing. It's not going to be paradigm changing when you're talking about that individual clinician-patient interaction. It's another investigation and there are principles of good clinical practice and let's apply those. So an example of that is when one of the ethical challenges, people and barriers, people are saying was, well, we, we can sequence all of these genes. We, maybe we should be looking at absolutely everything. So that would mean that somebody coming in having a neurological, uh, um, with a neurological condition, if all of their genes were examined, they could potentially find out that they had a variant or a mutation causing breast cancer. But that's not what they were there for. And so we turned it around and said, well, you know, when a patient comes in, you don't do a whole body MRI. You do an MRI of the part of the body that you want to look at. And so it's the same with genomics. So it should be the same with genomics. Let's test out an approach where, yes, everything, the data is there, all the data gets generated, but you're only analysing the genes that are relevant to the person's condition. 
and clinical genes, not highly speculative research genes. And this comes back to the big data and the sharing as well, that that data we will make available with the patient's consent to researchers to then look for other genes um, on a research basis, but we're focused on clinical care. There had been a lot of discussion in particularly the early 21st century about privacy in genes, about Mm. insurance companies making sort of decisions on your predispositions, and it was seen as an invasion of privacy. There's less talk about that there. Is it because of privacy legislation and protection of individuals' uh, data has come into place here or uh, what's happened there? Well, there's sort of two slightly different situations. That So with the people that are being seen through our program, they have medical conditions. And so with um, insurance, and we're fortunate in Australia, health insurance is community rated. That means that an individual's personal health history isn't taken into account in the premiums. So when we're talking about concerns about privacy and health, it applies much more to life insurance, um, income insurance, trauma, those forms of insurance. And so the people that we're seeing have already have a medical condition which they need to declare and what this testing is doing is looking to understand the cause of that condition. So that shouldn't have an impact on that person's insurance. The concerns have lied more with people who are well, who are having testing to look for their future risk of disease. And certainly people that are having what we call predictive testing, and largely this has been in hereditary cancer, hereditary cardiac conditions, that people are well and they're learning they've got a higher risk of developing cancer. And so they are required to declare that to their life insurance company or the company that they're getting insurance products from. Uh, so the concern has been that companies will base their, will deny people that are found to have a mutation that's highly likely to cause a condition in the future that they won't be able to get insurance. What is the cost-benefit analysis from doing genomics? You talked about an earlier pilot study which was in colorectal cancer, wasn't it? You you said, right, I want to look at how it looks five years from now, how genomics can help in healthcare. Does it help in healthcare? It did help in healthcare. So what was the cost-benefit analysis yeah. that you examined? Colorectal cancer was one of the ones we looked at early on um, across our whole program, there have been 16 different conditions that we've looked at. Some of those, we haven't found any improvement over existing testing. And in fact, colorectal cancer was one of those. So in hereditary colorectal cancer, there was a very good panel test. So they would just sequence the genes known to cause hereditary cancer. And the genomic test was not an improvement over that. So that's really helpful. That tells the um, hospitals and funding bodies, government, well, this is okay. You know, as it as it is, in the other example I gave, um, the child what we call childhood syndrome. So children born with um, physical features that suggest that they have an inherited condition. What we did was compare the costs of their usual investigations with the costs of the exome or the the genomic test, and we compared the number of diagnoses that were made, and we found that there was, at that time, five times the number of diagnoses with the genomic test at one quarter of the investigation costs. And in fact, for each additional diagnosis that was made over standard care, there was actually a cost saving. So that's very powerful um, kind of figures. And 
that was part of the uh, submission to the medical services advisory committee to be for that testing to be included on the MBS item number um, and the recommendation back to government has been that that should be now a funded test I mean that's just really looking at the that this is a better investigation like a more effective making a diagnosis and where we also try and really understand the benefits that come to people individually that might not be captured by the health technology assessment, the the kind of certainty that having a diagnosis makes, even having a diagnosis can make things easier with the NDIS in terms of application to the NDIS, the certainty parents then have around what the cause of their condition is, the, as I mentioned earlier, linking up with other families around the world that have children with the same condition. So not just the medical health care, but also social cultural support for yeah. conditions. Uh, and creating communities which would have never found each other otherwise. I really like this idea of almost customised healthcare that actually depends on everybody playing, uh, so almost on a global scale. Yeah. And it's, that's kind of the nice side of this story. And it's been something that's been really evident in genomics. So we've seen it you know, here locally with researchers, clinicians, laboratories working really closely together. You know, the challenges of this big data are such it really needs people working closely and bringing the different expertises together. And we see that around Australia. Um, I've talked about Melbourne Genomics. There's Australian Genomics Health Alliance, which is bringing the you know, state-based activities and um, working on national harmonisation and then linking in internationally with um, groups like the Global Alliance for Genomics and Health. And so they're all about promoting sharing of data and sharing experience around the world. So it's this very active um, collaboration. Everybody understands that nobody can do this alone. Nobody's going to be able to understand enough of the genome to make enough of a difference. You deal with many, many stakeholders, from families to genetic conditions to communities of rare diseases to scientists, researchers, large organisations, corporations. That's quite an extraordinary challenge. What drove you to make those connections? Most people would look at that and go, oh, too hard. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, that's a very good question. What drove me? I guess I've always worked across organisations coming out of a laboratory background and then going into healthcare. I, right from the start in genetic counselling, saw how you know, how necessary it was to work closely with the laboratories to understand the test results that were coming out, and equally for them sometimes to understand some of the challenges that the way they might think want things ideally to work into the sample collection might not always work for for other reasons. So, and yeah, and then um, sometimes with research colleagues, so not understanding why research findings aren't immediately being taken up in healthcare because they've done this fantastic research. Why aren't clinicians just embracing it? And this is one of the big challenges. And often people talk about technology and the challenge of the technology and the challenge of the big data. But actually, healthcare is designed to be safe and secure and reproducible as much as possible, whereas science is all about innovation and cutting edge. You know, we often use the analogy of the fighter plane. Science is the fighter plane, innovative, pushing further, faster. Whereas healthcare is more like getting on a plane to go to Sydney. You want it to be safe. You want to know when you're going to arrive. You want to know how much it costs. You want good value. You want it to be the same each time. And so healthcare is 
not designed to change very rapidly on a whim. It needs careful thought. In fact, most, I think, the RAND Corporation found that to get a new technology into healthcare takes about 15 years. And we've really accelerated that because this is now five years or so. And that's because we've taken a very broad approach, broad in terms of types of conditions, broad in in terms of types of organisations, broad in terms of the strategies that we're using. So we talk about flagships, those 16 conditions. We talk about the flagship projects. They're working on getting evidence to put back to hospitals and to government of when this testing is worth doing and how it should be done. And when the how is not just in the laboratory, but the how is also the talking with people about it, the what information needs to go to the laboratory, how it can be discussed with patients, who who in the in the clinical services should be doing this uh, and the clinicians that are running these flagships they're getting the hands-on experience of doing this and evaluating it and so they're then the leaders within their discipline that can help their colleagues um, not be over enthusiastic and equally not be too pessimistic but to get it just right and so there's that level of change there's change that needs to happen in terms of clinicians using tests the hospital services being able to introduce this safely um, within their organizations and then at the government level with the policy decisions and funding decisions about when and where and how testing should be done Go, Clara, you're making a difference. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of people are making a difference. I mean, I think we've served as my team. I have a fabulous team. And my team work really hard with all of those stakeholders that you mentioned. And really, it's it's about what we do is really catalyse that collaboration of people working together and help that keep on happening and provide the opportunity um, through the funding that we have from the Victorian state government and the member organisations that provides the opportunity for people to work together, to learn together and to make these changes. Without that, people would be in silos. The same lessons would be learnt over again in different hospitals. What happens at the Austin Hospital in Monash? You know, they wouldn't be learning from each other necessarily. So this is really helping everybody learn, share experience and ensure that whether wherever a person goes, whichever the hospitals they go to, they're getting access to good genomic care. Clara, do you still deal with some misconceptions from various groups about what's possible with human genomics and healthcare? So I think there's been a lot of hype about genomics. And so people get very excited about all the possibilities. And we see that sometimes when testing's first made available, that this is going to be the answer for everything. But genomics is just part of the puzzle. Uh, it can give some answers. It's not going to give all answers. There's, and then we talked about data again. You know, genomics is the start. There's proteomics, epigenomics. I think over time we'll understand more and more of all of these different parts and the information will be combined together. Of course, genomics being just the gene, proteomics being the proteins that flip around. And what was the other one? Epigenomics. Oh, which is the, the environment in which the genes and the proteins operate. Yeah. And so one of the things I think that sometimes people can have a misconception about is that we'll be able to give much more definitive answers or much more um, be able detailed. to give, yeah is more it? detailed yeah. or to know to know more with more certainty so um, because we're looking at what I'm saying inverted commas all the genes that therefore we can provide more information about what the course of the disease will be and now that might be the case for some changes but not others and um, 
I think people expect that we know a lot more about the genome than we actually do. There's still a lot of uncertainty there. There's, this is why the sharing around the world is so important to really develop a much better understanding so that we can give, you know, there are lots of what we call variants of uncertain significance. So some changes we can say, well, it's clearly not causing the condition. The laboratory can say that. That Others, we can say, well, yes, we've seen this many times and biologically fits and it meets the criteria that this is likely to be disease causing. But then there's a lot of variants that fall in the middle that are suspicious, but there's just not enough known about them yet to be certain that they are definitely disease causing or definitely not disease causing. It's not a yes or no, it's a grey area. Exactly. There's a lot of grey still. All right. No doubt you've seen the film Gattaca and for those of you who haven't might want to check it out. What's your response to the comment, we are our genes? Oh, <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not a, somebody that it's all about the genes. I think genetics is, uh, genetic makeup is an important facet, but that's so much, many more other aspects like environment um, that make a difference. We can rise above our genes. Yeah. And genetic information provides predictive information sometimes, even in talking in terms of, you know, what might happen in the future, like what diseases might happen. It's, it's predictions and not certain information. Right. So we're not our genes. Our genes are our predictions. Yeah. Well, our genes are maybe hints or glimpses, but certainly not the full picture. Clara, I bet you a lot of people ask you about those Ancestry.com ads you see on television. They seem to be a thing at the moment. Yeah. Ancestry testing is very, I think for many people, it's a fun thing to do. I cringe slightly when they link in their their interests with their genetic makeup and what their long distant ancestors did. I think people look to make meaning of things and that's totally fine. But again, as a genetic counsellor, I think those aren't necessarily in your genetic makeup. They're not scientific. Your no. your Viking that rode the seas doesn't mean that's why you like yeah. surfing. And with um, Sylvia Metcalf has been doing some research I'm part of with people doing online, um, what we call online testing, and people are doing ancestry testing, and then they're having it reanalyzed for so-called health purposes. Uh, but the evidence base behind those associations and the ability of that testing to predict future health is very variable. And I think while people see it as a nice added extra, in fact, it's something to be careful of and to really look carefully into. Yeah. Hey, we all evolved from Eve in Africa, so just stick with that. We're not sure her hobbies were the same as ours. Yeah. You can't make that interpretation. Next time we hear the word DNA being bandied around <laughs> to describe a corporation or, or a car, um, what would you like us to think about? Oh, I think it's good that people have a sense that DNA is something that's intrinsic to us. I hope that people don't take that as in a very literal way that you know it's you know, it's in my DNA it's something it's often said by people to mean it's something really fundamental and important and intrinsic to me but as a genetic counselor I think but it's not literally caused by your genetic makeup so I think that it's it's that difference of something intrinsic but actually things that get talked about as in my DNA aren't necessarily actually genetic related sure I mean in some ways DNA only works if it's in a certain environment. Mm. I love that complexity. <laughs> 
Professor Clara Gaff. Thank you. Thank you, Eddie. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you to Clara Gaff, Honorary Professorial Fellow at the University of Melbourne and the Executive Director of the Melbourne Genomics Health Alliance. And thanks to our reporter, Dr Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on May 16, 2019. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, drop us a review on iTunes and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.